This is They Create Worlds, episode 142, Ultima, Exodus to a Calabath. If anybody wants to find me, I'll be in the last place you would look. In a place where people used to be, a land that's called reality, you'll find me there. Welcome to They Create Worlds. I'm Jeffrey and I'm joined by my co-host, Alex. Hello. From the deepest pit of the seven hells, to the very pinnacle of the heavens, the world shall tremble. Unleash Ultima! No, no, uh, Jeff, no, 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 stop. What? What? Yes, we're doing Ultima, but we are not unleashing that Ultima. I thought because we played Final Fantasy XIV so many times together that we were doing Ultima. No, this was not my intention, Jeff, when I pitched this topic. Oh. Instead, we're going to do that other Ultima. That computer game, Ultima. This is still a computer game. Well, yes, but this is the game series that helped birth all RPGs, both in the West and in the East. One of the most influential video game series of all time. So influential, I maybe should have made one of the games part of our top 20 most influential games of all time. But I did not, and I stand by that decision. But you could make the argument. I see. Well, in that case... Since we have to go through, I don't know, let's see here. According to my notes, nine games? Ten, really. Ten games? Plus spinoffs. Wait, what? Plus spinoffs and MMOs, but not that MMO. Well, I guess we need to toss out all of these other notes I had. (laughs) Yes. And we need to go and look at this fellow named Richard Garriott that we talked about before, this origin system, brothers, and something about him coding. Yes, that's right. To address your first concern first, this is definitely a two-part episode. As many of our longtime listeners know, a lot of our two-part episodes start as one-part episodes and then Alex talks too much. But this one is planned to be a two-part episode because there is just way too much ground to cover. Unless it means that he talks so much that it turns into a three-part episode. Who knows? When I was putting this together, I honestly did think to myself, you know, a trilogy on trilogies would probably be most thematically appropriate for Ultima. But I think that would get us too far into the weeds, because while they are influential games, if we were going to engage with the games on that level, we'd be getting into really detailed looks at gameplay and all of this stuff, which is totally valid, but it's not the podcast we do. Obviously, we touch on gameplay, but we're more about the history, we're more about the context, we're more about how things build on each other, as opposed to going into a particular game and saying, here's all the systems, and here's how they changed in the next game, and the next game, etc. I honestly do think we'll keep it to two, though uh, everyone is more than welcome to start their betting pools right now, if they uh, so choose. I think that's probably a pretty safe bet. We're going to do the early part of the series today, we'll do the later part of the series in our next episode. We're not really going to talk about the spinoffs other than to kind of briefly mention that they're there and how they fit into the context. We're not going to talk about Ultima Online except in passing because that's really its whole own thing. I mean, you could do a whole episode just on that or just on early MMOs, which is a little bit separate from what the mainline Ultimas did. Before we get into it, though, I will, of course, have links into our show notes of what we have done about Richard Garriott and the origin system. For those who may not have listened to those episodes or need a refresher real quick, 
how are we approaching this in relation to the previous episodes that we have done? Absolutely. So we have covered some of this stuff before, as you mentioned. What we're going to do this time is we're really going to look at the Ultima game specifically and how that series evolved. It's really a great case study, in, in addition to the games just being influential, which of course they are. It's a great case study in the way game development changed over time because the evolution of the Ultima series is really the evolution of the computer game industry as a whole. You're starting with something that was done by literally a bedroom coder, just in basic, which is what all the bedroom coders start with because it's easy. Then this bedroom coder matures, starts learning more advanced languages, starts learning assembly language. His games get more complex. Then he realizes his games are so marketable he can have his own company, so he does so. Those games progress, and then they get so complex that he can't do it all anymore, and you have to have a team. And it's just this total evolution of the industry can be seen in the evolution of the Ultima series. So that's one aspect of it that we'll look at. We are just going to look most specifically on the games themselves, the influences, the design decisions, rather than tying it in to all of Richard Garriott's larger history, though obviously there's a lot of overlap there. Certainly, we're not going to talk too much about larger origin systems history, which is more than just Ultima. It's also Wing Commander. I have links to things on origin systems, Wing Commander. We've done episodes on them. Exactly. Obviously, there will still be a little overlap, as we've said a few times in recent episodes. We've done so many episodes now that it's almost impossible to find a completely virgin topic anymore. But we hope that each time that we cover something again, that we're approaching it in a slightly different way or revealing new information, new insights, etc. So I guess we're going to have to start with either Ultima 1 or a Calabath Ultima 0, which wasn't intended to be an Ultima game, but kind of became one. It's complicated. Yes, well, I mean, you really cannot talk about the Ultima series without talking about a Kalabath and even some developments before that, because that really is the start of it all. There is no Ultima without a Kalabath, because both when he created a Kalabath and when he created Ultima, he wasn't thinking in terms of creating a series, but he was thinking in terms of creating particular types of games. Just to very briefly go over the origins, har har har, of Richard Garriott slash Lord British, we have to understand a few things about Richard. First of all, he is the son of an astronaut. His father, Owen Garriott, became part of the space program in the mid-1960s. This was the first wave of astronauts that were not test pilots, that were not Air Force people or Navy people. The first wave of astronauts, the Mercury and Gemini and Apollo astronauts, they were all pilots first and other things second. Now that the space program was moving along, they kind of decided that it was time to bring in people that were scientists and engineers first and pilots second. Owen Garrett was part of this wave. He was a very brilliant scientist and engineer. He passed away not too long ago, but he was very brilliant, one of the top solar physicists by the end of his career, not necessarily when he was recruited in the mid-60s, but by the end of his career, one of the top solar physicists around. I mean, this was a really brilliant man with graduate degrees and all sorts of pedigrees. So when we're talking astronaut, we're not talking about your Neil Armstrong or Alan Shepard type real American man astronaut. We're talking about a real intellectual and a real scientist and engineer. His mother was an artist. 
and a very good one. So he had this left brain, right brain thing going on both within himself. He's a very smart and interesting person, but also in terms of his influence and environment and upbringing. That, that's all very important to how this entire series develops. He grew up in the Houston suburbs near the Johnson Space Center, Clear Lake, the Houston suburb where all the astronaut people were. He grew up in a very atypical community. He was born in Britain because his father was, I think it was Cambridge at the time, as a lecturer. He didn't live there long. He grew up most of his childhood in Texas, in Houston, but in a suburb that was full of NASA people. So it was all astronauts and engineers and scientists and brilliant people, a very unusual community to grow up in. He had an interest in some of that stuff, but he wasn't interested in computers at first. He was introduced to them, ironically enough, not in Houston, but in California for one year, one brief year, his freshman year of high school, I believe it was. They actually moved to the Silicon Valley area because his father had some kind of job thing going on there. Then they moved right back to Texas. It was just this one year interrupt in his Houston experience. He was introduced to computers at the school, Silicon Valley Technology Place, and he was like, meh. Then he was introduced to them again when he got back to Houston, uh, and he was again like, meh. To be clear, we're talking about a teletype hooked up to a remote time-sharing system. We've talked about this before, how some of the wealthier or uh, more tech-savvy high schools were starting to see this kind of thing in this period of time, in like the 70s. He didn't really see the appeal yet. His parents thought it was important that he engage with this stuff, though his father was a scientist, his father was an engineer, he realized that this was going to be important. They could tell that their son had an aptitude for this kind of work, so they sent him away to a summer camp, a summer computer camp in Oklahoma, 1974, I believe was the year. This was an incredibly formative experience for him. Everything really flows from this, and we did talk about this a little in our origin episode, but for our context here, it bears repeating. First of all, it's where he got his name. It just so happens that he was born in England of Americans. Neither of his parents is British, but it just so happens he was born in England, but nobody knew that. He was there a very brief period of time. He didn't have an English accent. He didn't have English cultural touchstones. He just happened to be born there. His campmates didn't know that. But when he first got to camp, one of the other kids came to his room. You know, they were in dormitories at a university or something said hi, and Richard responded, hello. That formal greeting, said as a Texan would say it, I mean, not said like, hello, but just, hello, sounded so formal to this kid. You sound like a British person, so you're going to be Lord British. I can't remember if it was British or Lord British at first. The Lord may have come later, but the point is, that was his assigned nickname by his fellow nerds, was British, because he said hello instead of hi when he was first greeted. You would think something more formal like, say, greetings. Right. That's where he got his name, British or Lord British. It's where he was first introduced to Dungeons and Dragons. Dungeons and Dragons was brand new at the time. Somebody had brought it to this camp and everybody started playing it and he got hooked on it. He had very recently also been exposed to Lord of the Rings for the first time, not at this camp, but he had read Lord of the Rings for the first time not long before it. He was becoming immersed in this fantasy literature, in this fantasy role-playing game, and it suddenly clicked. I can use these computers to make Dungeons & Dragons-style game experiences. That's when the light bulb went off at this camp, and that's when he finally decided, okay, these computer things are pretty cool. Came back to school with renewed purpose. He came back to Texas with renewed purpose. 
He's both left-brained and right-brained. He's very articulate. Many people that have worked at Origin have talked about how he had a reality distortion field very similar to Steve Jobs. They didn't use the term reality distortion field, but the way they describe Garriott's charisma is very similar to the way people describe Steve Jobs' charisma. He had this charisma even as a teenager, even as a young man, a young boy. He goes to the principal and convinces the school to let him do a custom course where he would work on creating a computer program all semester long. If he had a working program at the end of the semester, he passed, and if he didn't, he failed. He got the school to go along with this and even count it as his foreign language credit because he was working with a computer language. Hmm. Now, you know, we wonder how many students today wish they could get away with that one. (laughs) Right? So he spent a semester or a year, I can't remember which. I could look it up, but it's not important for our purposes. Just doing essentially an independent study where he worked all alone, unsupervised on the computer, on the teletype, hooked up to the computer off-site. This is when he was programming his Dungeons & Dragons experience, his basic dungeon crawl. He created a series of games. He labeled each time he did a new iteration of it. He labeled it D&D 1, D&D 2, D&D 3, each one just an improvement on the one before. Not to sell, not to distribute to other people, just learning the computer. Now, these games did not bear any resemblance to Ultima because we're talking about teletypes, mainframes, not graphics. We're talking about something that looks a little like Rogue in the sense that it's using ASCII characters, but is turn-based, not real-time, is turn-based, and you're moving around, exploring dungeon, fighting monsters, gathering treasures very primitive, but he's just trying to recreate the D&D experience, which we have to remember in its earliest incarnation was almost entirely a dungeon crawl experience, not what we think of as D&D and role-playing today on a computer. That's going on. He gets his A, as far as I know, in the course. Then, you know, he's going to graduate. He's going to lose access to the computer. I mean, he's going to go on to college. Presumably the college will have computers, but he won't necessarily, almost definitely not have the same level of access in college that he had to this computer at the high school because basically he was the entire computer class and he could do it whenever he wanted, whatever he wanted, practically. He wanted to be able to keep programming, obviously, and by now the microcomputers are coming. He takes a look at this and decides that he wants an Apple II. It's the one with color graphics, it's the snazziest, it's definitely the best one for playing games or making games much better than the TRS-80. It's also an industrial computer for your safety. (laughs) That's right. (laughs) But it's also a very expensive computer on top of all of that. $1,200 plus in, you know, late 1970s money. He goes to his father and basically says, if I can make this game and make it work and have everything working right, will you buy me an Apple II? Owen Garriott sees the value in encouraging his child to develop these computer skills. He thinks these will be very practical. It's also a lot of money. Now, they're doing pretty well for themselves, but it's a lot of money. So he does not agree to buy him the computer. But he says, if you do this project and it works right and everything is great, I will go halvesies with you. Save up your own money to buy half, and I'll buy the other half. So that's what Richard did, you know, working odd jobs or whatever. He saved up half, did his game, of course, and his father chipped in the other half, and he had his very own Apple II. This is where the story of it all really begins. 
There's some mythologizing that's gone on. It's hard to separate the fact from fiction with some of Richard Garriott's early life and early career. Most of this is not deliberate mythologizing. It's not hucksterism in the same way that, say, Nolan Bushnell sometimes engages in hucksterism. But there are details that are remembered a certain way and told a certain way that other evidence shows are probably not true. So we're going to try to sort through all of that. He remembers doing these computer experiments and starting his work on what would become a Calabeth, which we're talking about next, in 1979, in the summer before he went off to college in Austin. It is far more likely that he did it in 1980 that he actually started working on it in the summer between his freshman and sophomore year of college at the University of Texas, Austin. So that's kind of the narrative we're going to use. It just makes more sense with the timeline. He goes off to the University of Texas. He's immersing himself in this computer. He's really not engaging very much socially at the school and and in the community. He's far from home. He's never been far from home before, as is true for most college students. Until he discovers the Society for Creative Anachronism. Are you familiar with the SCA, Jeffrey? I know we talked about it before. You may have even told me what it was before. (laughs) I have a terrible memory as a species. Well, it's a group that has chapters around the country. It's a group that, to put it in simplest terms, tries to recreate medieval living, sort of. That's why it says anachronism right in the name of the society. They know they're not really replicating medieval times. They're replicating some form of medieval times. Now, that doesn't mean they go live in cottages in the woods and, you know, poop in an outhouse. They're not like that. They're people that enjoy the popular romantic conception of medieval or early Renaissance times. They like to get together, dress up as lords and ladies and knights have feasts and courtly festivals and engage in mock combat using stylized medieval techniques, just kind of engage with a somewhat medieval lifestyle, but one that they know is not trying to be authentic. That's why creative anachronism is right there in the name of the group. I don't know if you recall this. They actually came once when we were at Wolf Branch, when we were in, I can't remember if it was elementary or junior high, probably fifth or sixth grade, somewhere around there. A few members actually came once and did a fighting demonstration for us. (laughs) I do not recall that at all. I can't remember if it was every class. I mean, we weren't in the class together that year, so it's possible like my class got to see it and your class didn't get to see it because it wasn't like a school-wide assembly. I very vividly remember that because it was in the multi-purpose room. You know, it was in a small space. None of this is going to make sense to any of our listeners, but we're old. Give us our reminiscences. So it's it's possible your class didn't even see it, but I, I vividly remember the SCA coming and doing the fighting. They don't use real weapons, you know, similar to LARPing. They use weapons that will not harm you, but still allow you to simulate things like sword fighting. <laughs> he ended up getting in with the SCA and ended up loving his time there, and that really brought him out of his shell a little bit, brought him out of his shyness and his new surroundings a little bit, and got him even more immersed in this idea of medieval times and medieval lifestyles and medieval interactions. In the SCA, you have a name that you choose for yourself that is not your real name, you know, an alias. He did not choose Lord British for his <laughs> alias here because that would be a bit pompous, being this new member of this organization and being like, I am Lord British. He chose a name that was actually a mistake. He had a bicycle. 
the brand of either the bicycle or, or the chain on the bicycle, sources vary on that, but one of the brands associated with his bicycle was Shimano. That was the name. He misread that as Shamino. He switched the vowels around. The character of Shamino became his SCA character. You, as an Ultima player, probably find that name familiar. I do. There are a lot of names in the Ultima series that are based on people he knew, particularly people that he knew at the SCA. Eolo is also based on someone that he knew from the SCA. Many of the names in there, almost all of the names in there of most of the characters are based on people he knows in one way or another in real life. Richard Garrett himself is both Lord British and Shamino. He's got all of this percolating, and then he sees the game Escape by Silas Warner. Escape is a very early Apple II game. Silas Warner is one of the noteworthy early Apple II programmers, most known for Castle Wolfenstein. Escape is pretty obscure. Richard Garriott saw this game, and the thing about it is, is you were escaping from a three-dimensional maze. This just amazed him as well it should have. It was an incredible graphical feat on an Apple II. This got Richard thinking, I've got these D&D games, the most recent one being D&D 28, more specifically, I think, even D&D 28B. What if I took this dungeon crawl thing I've been working on all this time and make the dungeons all three-dimensional? Like this game Escape that I saw. Escape is the game that showed him, hey, this is possible. You can make this work on an Apple II. So in this summer between his freshman and sophomore year, because as I said, this is almost certainly 1980 and not 1979 as he normally reports it. In summer of 1980, while he's back home in Houston, he just slaves away on his Apple II computer. He gets a neighbor that he knows that was part of his D&D group. I didn't mention this, but he had a D&D group that he held at his house in high school that attracted people from all over the community. So he was connected like that. He had a neighbor, Kisabayui, who later became an Origin employee, do some monster graphics. He had his mother, as I said, an artist, draw the cover art. He himself programmed and did the 3D dungeons and everything. That became a Kalabeth, a name that he chose just because it sounded cool. Obviously, it has a very Tolkien-esque feel to it. It sounds like something that could be found in Middle-earth. That's it. I mean, there's not much to it. It's a bit quirky. It's, it's a role-playing game. It has D&D style attributes, though the way hit points work is very weird because you get hit points by defeating enemies. You don't restore them. There's kind of a delicate balancing act between attacking enemies that aren't going to wipe out all your hit points before you kill them so that you can get more hit points. He's never really said what possessed him to do such a bizarre hit point system. Obviously, it's not out of D&D, even though most of the game is. It's a dungeon crawl. There's a very basic overworld where you get your bearings, can buy equipment, and then you go down into dungeons, and the dungeons are wireframe, three-dimensional. There are monsters that you face, and those are drawn as stick figures as well. They're not three-dimensional. They're two-dimensional stick figures. You battle monsters and level up and try to beat the game. I mean, it's very simple. It's the starting point for this whole thing. It's a fairly clunky game because he's working in basic. Basic is what he knows. Basic is not the best way to try to do wireframe graphics. It's a bit clunky. It's a bit slow, but it kind of works. At this time, he is also working at a computer land in Houston. And this is actually a very interesting computer land. I can't remember how much of this we went into in the last episode. When we talked about his computer land experience, the specific details about the founding of the store, I'm not sure if we did or not. Because this is Houston, and more specifically the Houston suburbs around the Johnson Space Center, 
This particular computer land was established by a group of partners led by a guy named John Mayer. John Mayer wasn't just some computer entrepreneur guy. He was the director of flight operations at NASA. So the guy had some credentials. <laughs> he joined NASA before it was NASA, when it was still the National Aeronautics Council or whatever it was, NACA. He was at NASA before it was NASA. He was integrally involved in the Apollo missions and the moon landing and all of that stuff. Then when he retired, he noticed these new computer things, these microcomputer things coming in, thought that was probably going to be interesting and big. And so he and a couple of partners and his wife, they bought a Computerland franchise together. Computerland was one of the earliest computer stores that was going national. That's not your typical computer store owner. You know, it's like Albert Einstein owning the Kinkos down the street or something. I mean, <laughs> it's crazy. Why is someone so renowned doing something so, comparatively speaking, menial? Well, you know, because he thought it was an interesting future and he was done with his NASA work and it seemed like a fun way to occupy his time in his later years. Richard Garriott worked at the store. Mayer saw this game that he was working on, was like, you know, this looks pretty good. Why don't I put some of these on the store shelves and we'll try to sell them? Because remember, in the very early days, we've talked about this a little before, you went to a computer store to buy a computer. The thing that was being marketed to you was a computer. There was a little bit of software generally available from the company that put out the computer. In the very beginning here, there wasn't much third-party software, especially with national distribution. The ways that computer stores source software before distributors like SoftCell and MicroD got going was they saw what the neighborhood people had. Someone in the neighborhood, usually a kid, but not always, would come in and say, I have these cool programs. You know, we put them on your wall and they'd look at the program and be like, OK, this looks pretty good. Yeah, let's put that on the wall. Even after you got a couple of big things like, say, VisiCalc, which is something that everyone wanted for an Apple II, that didn't mean that there was suddenly software of all kinds blossoming nationally. A lot of it was very locally done like this. Most software was sold via mail order or via magazines. Maybe you sold a few copies in your local computer store, or if you're a company just starting out like a Broderbund or a Sierra, you sell it in however many computer stores you can reach on a single tank of gas. That was the industry. Computer stores were genuinely looking for interesting software from anywhere because there was no national software industries. Mayer sees this game that Garriott's working on, of course, because Garriott's working there. And he's like, this looks cool. Why don't we try to sell that? Richard was like, OK, sure. Why don't we try to sell that? He got some Ziploc baggies. As I said, he got his mom to do a cover illustration. I mean, this isn't a box. It's just a baggie with a, you know, stapled cardboard thing with an illustration on it. They sell a Colabeth World of Doom in the Computerland story works. What happens next has been told a couple of different ways. Richard Garriott likes to say that the game made its way deeper into the country via the sneaker net of software piracy. I think that's probably not true in this case. While there's no doubting that computer software has always been pirated and was certainly being pirated at that time and people traded software or brought a cool program they saw to a local computer society and traded it with their friends who traded it with their friends, while this was a real thing, it's hard to believe that when Richard Garriott claims he only sold maybe about eight copies of the game in Houston, Texas, that somehow through the magic of copying and piracy, within a matter of weeks, a copy of this appears at a software publisher in California. It's not strictly impossible, but it really stretches credulity. I don't think that's the way it happened. The other way it has sometimes been told, 
particularly in the 80s, closer to the events in question, was that John Mayer not only put the game on his shelves, but, seeing an opportunity, contacted a publisher that he already did business with, because they did exist, it's just that they didn't have big national distribution yet, and said, hey, you know, this guy I know made this really cool game and you should take a look at it because you might want to sell it. Whether it was through piracy, which I think is unlikely, or the direct intervention of John Mayer, which I think is far more likely, the game came to the attention of Al Rimmers, who ran California Pacific, which was one of the very first computer game publishers. And we talked about them. We've talked about the early days of computer game publishing, and we talked about California Pacific. This was not a company that had a real grand plan, as these early companies did. This was basically a company that was like, okay, I used to work for IBM. I know how to sell stuff. I know how to go into computer people and sell them things. I'm going to gather up software that's out there and sell it. You know, he didn't have his own people on staff necessarily that were making the games. He didn't have this grand plan to create a game company doing specific types of product. It's just, I will gather up everything I can find from these mail order companies, these bedroom coders, these type in listings, et cetera, and I'll sell them. Al Rimmers of California Pacific sees it. Long story short, because we are kind of rehashing what we talked about in our Origin Systems episode, they end up selling a Calabeth. It does very well for the time. Richard always says it sold 30,000 copies. It almost certainly did not, knowing what we know about sales at the time, when even the best-selling games in existence were not selling much more than 20, 25,000 copies. We know Alcalabeth was not one of the best-sellers in existence. It did fine. It appeared on best-sellers charts, but lower down the charts. We know that games that were appearing much higher on charts were still only selling like 20, 30,000 units. So there's no way Alcalabeth did. So we don't know exactly how many it sold, and we can't take Richard Garriott's word for it. Whether it sold 3,000, 5,000, even if it got as high as six or 10,000, that was still very good. And it still made Richard Garriott a decent amount of money for a kid his age. He claims $150,000. Again, even if his estimates are off, he did all right on that game. So he's like, okay, I should continue doing this. I mentioned they worked at the Computerland store in Houston. One of his co-workers at this Computerland store, who was a couple of years older than him, had actually worked at the store before him, was a fellow by the name of Ken Arnold. Kind of funny, there are a couple of Ken Arnolds that are important to computer game history. There's also a Ken Arnold that was one of the co-creators of Rogue, but this is not that Ken Arnold. This is a different Ken Arnold. Ken Arnold had grown up in various spots around the country. His father was in the oil business spent a lot of time in Wyoming. There's a lot of oil out there. And then as his father moved up the chain, he got a very prestigious position with an oil company in Houston, which is one of the centers of the oil industry. They ended up in Clear Lake as well. There were two high schools there, and Ken Arnold actually went to the other high school. He didn't go to school with Richard, and he was a couple years older as well. He was introduced to computers through school, kind of the same way Richard was. He became fascinated with computers. He went to college in electrical engineering and did a major focus on computers. He was involved in some interesting projects, including some early computer music projects. So he was really in tune with computers, and he, quite frankly, had more experience with computers than our friend Richard did at this point. Basically, Ken Arnold said to him, you shouldn't be doing this in basic. It's so slow. You got to do it in assembly language. And Richard was like, nah, nah, too much work to try to figure that out. I know basic. I can do basic. It works fine. But you can make the game so much faster, so much better. And so finally he came to an agreement. It's like, okay, well, fine. You do the overworld. Because he was thinking in terms of improving the game. You do the overworld and 
you can do assembly language to do the overworld, and the rest of it I will code up in basic, as I've always done. Ultima 1 was a collaboration. Most of it was Richard. It was Richard's idea. It was Richard's game design. The dungeons, which are very similar to Kalabath, they're Richard's dungeons. Ken Arnold provided the incredibly important tile-based overworld. We've talked about what we mean by things like tile-based graphics before, but just to recap, computers of the day had very limited memory. If you want to do an elaborate world, an elaborate setting for your game, any graphics that you put in that game take up memory, and the more graphics you have, the more memory they take up. You don't have a lot, so that's a problem. When you have a tile-based graphic system, what you do is you create a very small number of interchangeable art assets that can fit together like a puzzle. Squares, 8 by 8 16 by 16 4 by 4 depending. Yes, you make them symmetrical because that makes the computer happy, and you make them symmetrical on multiples of 8 because that makes the computer even happier. You make them in such a way that you can interconnect them, and then by having just three or four or five different landscape pieces, you can create elaborate worlds. You can have them be generated based on placing those tiles in accordance with an algorithm or something. Of course, that placement of all those tiles to make a big world works much better if the program's moving fast, works much better in assembly than in basic, where it would just chug along. Tile-based overworlds are something that have been used in so many 8-bit games and, of course, were so important to, say, Dragon Quest, which got the idea directly from the Ultima games. So Ken Arnold is the one that comes up with the tile-based overworld and implements that in assembly. I also told you Ken Arnold was involved in computer music. He was also a musician in addition to being a computer programmer, a, a decent musician. Some of his high school teachers actually wanted him to go into music. He himself had the self-realization to know he wasn't actually talented enough to make it as a musician. But he was right on the border there. He was better than most of his peers. Ken Arnold did some music. Ken Arnold did the tile-based overworld and assembly. Richard Garriott did the rest. They wanted to call the game Ultimatum. Just like a Colabeth, it had no meaning. It's just a word that Richard Garriott found cool. He liked that word Ultimatum. Turns out there was already a board game called Ultimatum, so they couldn't use that name. It was copyrighted, trademarked, whatever. So he decided, I'll just shorten the name and call it Ultima. There is no significance to Ultima as a word. It doesn't mean anything in this context. People have tried to ascribe meaning to it after the fact, but there was no meaning. It's just Ultimatum didn't work, shorten the word, that sounds cool too. We'll do that. Being cool is basically the entire design philosophy of this game. If you haven't played the Ultima games, if you haven't played the early Ultima games, even if you played a later Ultima game but haven't played the earlier ones, you think you know what we're talking about here. It's like, okay, you're in a medieval world, you go around, you slay monsters, you gain experience, you get gold, you buy better equipment, you slay the big bad with your swords and stuff. I mean, yes, all of that happens, in fairness, but that leaves out the part with the spaceships, doesn't it, Jeffrey? Yeah, the first game is interesting. It has spaceships. Yeah, let's have some medieval and some sci-fi in there because it's cool. There were spaceships, and there were spaceship shooting sections. You're fighting ships that look very much like TIE Fighters from Star Wars. Basically, Richard Garrett is like, Dungeons & Dragons is cool. Society for Creative Anachronism is cool. Star Wars is cool. Let's put it all in. Let's just do it all. Knights and wizards and spaceships, oh my. So you have to fight an evil wizard. The evil wizard is invincible. He has a special gem that makes him invincible. What you have to do, which you don't know when you start the game, you don't know this, the game just kind of throws you out there. 
sets you right outside the town of Britain, ruled by Lord British. It just sets you out there and is like, okay, here you are. Eventually you learn that there's this evil sorcerer, Mondaine, that he is invincible because of this gem. So you need to find a time machine so that you can go back in time and stop him from creating his invincibility gem, thus defeating him. Makes perfect sense. (laughs) It's just not your typical fantasy plot, but he's just throwing in all the things he finds is cool, which is fine. Remember, he's still a kid at this point. I mean, he's in college, but he's really still a kid. He's a bedroom coder, and he's like, this is cool, this is cool, this is cool, let's do it. The game mostly takes place in this tile-based overworld and in these wireframe dungeons. There are towns and castles in the game, but they're all identical in the first game. It's one kind of set setup, and there's a king there, which you can buy hit points from. It's this buying hit point system again. There's a princess that you can rescue through a convoluted process that involves killing a jester that has the key, hoping you got the right key from him because they can carry one of two keys and only one of them opens the door and there's no way of knowing until you kill them, which causes the guards to go crazy and then you have to take care of them and you rescue the princess who gives you a big reward of gold and hit points and stuff. Hit points is as important a currency as gold because he has this weird system still where you buy hit points, you earn hit points by killing things. It's not like you level up and you get more hit points and then you like stay at an end to restore your hit points. Hit points are as much a currency as gold is. Nobody really explains why all of these kings are locking princesses away in their dungeons. That's not explained. Even Lord British has a princess locked in his dungeon because all the castles are the same. It's literally one interface that's used whenever you go to one. There's a tavern. You can talk to the cavern keep. And eventually, if you talk to the cavern keep enough, He'll finally reveal the plot of the game to you. No plot in an instruction book. Then you have to rescue a princess one more time when you meet the sufficient conditions. And then the princess tells you about the time machine. And then you find a spaceship. You go become a space ace, which is killing 20 fighters. Something else you learn from a tavern just randomly. That allows you to get the time machine. And there are gems you have to recover from dungeons. And the gems are used to power the time machine. You power up the time machine, go back in time, and defeat Mondane. There's a crystal behind him, and you actually have to destroy that crystal, which the game also doesn't make clear to you. Otherwise, he keeps regenerating. And yes, that's a plot hole, because we're said to be going back in time before he created his invincibility gem, yet we win by destroying his invincibility gem. Don't worry about it. Maybe it was halfway working. He hasn't finished the whole part of making the invincibility gem itself invincible, just him invincible. Right, and that's the logical conclusion. I don't think that's a bad conclusion at all, but it's important to note that none of that is explained in the game. Plot? Why do we have to express plot? You're led to believe that the whole point in going back in time is that Mondain is not yet invincible. Yet, when you get back in time, he actually is invincible. But, like you said, the gym is not, and and that's how you end up defeating him. It has a pretty simple command-driven interface. Remember, this is before GUIs, this is before mice. Basically, there are one-button commands to do everything. Which leads to some weirdness, because there's only one command per button, and some letters are more common than others. In order to steal things, which is something that you basically have to do to win the game because of the way it doles out gold and food and stuff, because, oh yes, there's also a hunger system. If you run out of food, you immediately die. There are hit points, and there's also food. You die if you run out of food immediately. It's like... You are a perpetual eating machine, and if you ever stop eating for a moment, you die. I'm making a little fun, but don't worry, we'll put this in context in a bit, and it won't be as bad as it sounds. 
there's all this weirdness. So stealing is something you basically have to do because of the way it doles out rewards. You will literally not get what you need without stealing. Stealing is done with the S key. S is for steal. So if you want to sell something, it's not S for sell, it's T for transact. If you want to look at your character's abilities, it's not S for stats, it's Z for stats, because Z looks vaguely like an S. There's some illogic in there that was made necessary by the system. You know, it mostly works. The very first game used the mixed character mode. At this time, character set generators were still not common. Character set generator being something where you use graphics to generate your characters, like letters and numbers. He used what's called the mixed graphics mode in the first game, which means that most of the screen was taken up by the bitmap. Then at the bottom of the screen, it was in a text-only mode. All the text had to fit in a very small part of the screen on the very bottom. The rest was a bitmap, and there was no character set generator. It's primitive in a lot of ways. It's bizarre in its plot. It's bizarre in some of its systems, where you have to eat perpetually or you die, where stealing is a necessary way of life instead of an optional side thing, where everybody, even the great Lord British, is locking random princesses in their dungeons without explanation. Obviously, you lock all the princesses up for their own protection. That's how we romanticize dungeons and creative anachronism, because obviously we have to save these princesses. What else are princesses for? It's not for saving. (laughs) Sure. And of course, the only way you can save the princesses is by murdering a jester in cold blood. You can steal from shops. You cannot steal from the jester. He played D&D 1.0, remember? In D&D 1.0, to become a bard, you had to become a 5th level fighter. (laughs) Then you had to change class and become a 5th level cleric. Then you had to become a 5th level thief. Then a 5th level wizard. Uh And then you become a level 1 bard. And a level 1 bard is right next to a jester. Uh Uh-huh. Sure, we'll go with that. You can focus on these quirks of the game, and it's justifiable to do so. That doesn't really capture the magic of Ultima when it first came out in 1981, and I think it's important that we remember this. This is a period of time when most of the games that were available were very primitive action games. I'm not saying action games are primitive, I'm saying that most games for the Apple II were still primitive. The Apple II Plus had only just come out. The disk drive had only just come out. We were only now getting to the point where enough people had Apple II systems with enough RAM that they could do the high-res graphics. Most of the early games on the system, as we've discussed in other episodes, our technical episodes, used only the low-res graphics with humongous sprites. We're looking at you, Lemonade Stand. (laughs) Right. Most people only had a 16K Apple II. They didn't have a 48K Apple II, let alone a 64K Apple II, and everything was very RAM memory constrained. Ultima's coming out at a time where this is starting to change. The Apple II Plus and the disk drive came out in 79 but they were expensive, and now they're starting to permeate more. The Apple IIe is not out yet, but it's on the horizon just a couple of years later. We're getting to the point where you can do more interesting things on the Apple II. Most of the early games are very primitive, simple action games with blocky graphics. You have some text adventures as well, even a couple of graphical adventures like Mystery House. 
those can have some interesting puzzles, but they're still fairly constrained worlds as well. Ultima brought with it possibility. When we look at the very herky-jerky dungeons today, because the dungeons were still done in basic in the first game, so they were very herky-jerky, we see, oh my god, it's so slow and stuttery. What somebody seeing that for the first time was seeing was, oh my gosh, it's a dungeon full of possibility. Wizardry came out at about the same time. Wizardry had better dungeons because it was done in Pascal, and they could work more efficiently in Pascal than Richard Garrett could in Basic. Indeed, the combat system of Ultima was nothing next to the combat system of Wizardry. Wizardry was far more sophisticated in combat. But it was about the possibility. You had those 3D dungeons, and then you had the tile-based overworld. You could explore every inch of this world. There were random encounters on the surface as well, of course. You had to fight there too, but you could explore this world. There were all of these different towns, and even though they were all the same on the inside, just discovering them on the world was fascinating. You didn't know what you were doing here at first. I would see today this, you know, you have to keep going to the tavern and talking to people, and then randomly, for no particular reason other than they finally reveal the plot, the plot is revealed to you. For someone that's used to a dungeon crawl like Temple of Apshai, that is just very basic character-based graphics and no interaction to speak of, two-dimensional dungeons and all of this, it's like, oh my gosh, I've gone around this world and then I talked to this guy and this guy revealed this quest and oh my God, now I'm in space and oh my God, what has happened? I think Ultima more than anything is about possibility. It's about the idea that anything could happen on the next tile that you go to. Especially in the early games, nine times out of ten, something interesting did not happen on the next tile you went to. There were broken systems and there were convoluted messes to try to do anything. In the context of the times, it was, I think, an incredible feeling. I mean, I'm a little too young even for these games. Jeffrey and I came along a little later. I didn't play the Ultima games at all, but if I were playing the Ultima games, really it wouldn't have been until probably Ultima 5 or even Ultima 6 that I would have been of an age to be playing them. So we're a little too young to have experienced this fresh, but I think that's got to be a lot of the appeal. What do you think, Jeffrey, especially someone who has played the early games, even though you played them years after they came out? Honestly, I think the appeal there is the exploration and the puzzle. We've talked about before how PC games attract a particular type of individual playing game. Right. A more intellectual individual, someone who's willing to put in time and effort in order to understand a game, figure out how this computer works in order to even run that game. If I'm willing to go through that level of effort, I have the fallacy of sunken cost. I already put in five hours to get this game to run, and I threw $500 at this to get the RAM up to spec. I'm going to really enjoy the heck out of this game. Then you go into a game where, instead of all the other stuff you've had with Apple II, where it's just like lemonade stand, a simple simulator, this, that, or the other thing, you have this tile-based overworld. You have the intro screen, which is kind of interesting unto itself. You just explore around and go... Yeah, I can explore anywhere. There's a mystery here. Why am I in this world? What can I learn about this world? Is it just standard where I just go around, beat up monsters, get all the treasure? That's how all the other RPGs to this point have been. Oh, I talked to this barkeep, and he says there's an evil wizard that may or may not have been harassing me all this time anyway. There's a way I can beat him by going back in time. Okay, you got me interested here. That has a sense of accomplishment to it, that dig a little bit deeper, dig a little bit deeper, 
and get a big reward. We have that today a little bit with augmented reality games, where you have people who set up these games where you have to solve a mystery, discover ciphers in text, discover ciphers in sound files and images, do little weird things, find this little clue here or there. That kind of discovery and exploration is more sophisticated today, but back in the day, it is something that was very new and very thought after for anyone who was of a mind to go, hey, I want to understand how this works, and I want to understand what I could possibly do. Absolutely. I think that's why the early Ultimas resonated, even though oftentimes the game design was a little bit suspect. Obviously, the game design improves as the series goes on, and Richard learns more, plus there are teams of people, and some of them know more about this and that. I'm not saying that they remain a design mess for their entire history, but I think the possibility of the early games enticed people, and it allowed them to ignore some of the reality. He does Ultima 1. It comes out through California Pacific, the same company that put out a Colabeth. It does pretty well. Again, we don't know exactly, but 20,000, 30,000, possibly even as high as 50,000. But if it got that high, it was probably with a long tail. I mean, I think at the very beginning, it sold closer to 20, 25,000, which in the context of the time was very good. We have to remember that. It's considered a hit. Now, of course, he wants to keep doing this, and he finds himself at a bit of a crossroads. He's making money on games. He's making a lot of money on games. He's also going to university at this period of time, the University of Texas at Austin. He's having trouble figuring out the value of that anymore when he's doing so well in games. This creates something of a conflict. He's going to start work on Ultima 2. He kind of starts work on Ultima 2 in the summer. And then in fall, he's going to be back to school. He's at a crossroads because he really feels like this game thing is taking off and he starts putting more energy into it. He finally realizes, okay, I have to learn assembly language. He calls the people at California Pacific and is like, for my next game, I want to do it in assembly language. Do you have anyone that can help me? Al Rimmers put him in touch with one of his most accomplished programmers, a guy named Tom Lures or Lurs, not sure how it's pronounced, who created an asteroids clone for the company called Apolloids. And he gets this intense boot camp in assembly language over the summer. He goes back to school in the fall, and he's working on Ultima 2 at the same time that he's going to university. He's working in assembly language now. He understands 6502 assembly language now. But at the same time, he's taking a class on the 6809 microprocessor. 6809 was an upgrade of the Motorola 6800, which was an early 8-bit processor that was fairly well regarded. The 6502 is very similar to the 6800 and the 6809 because, and we won't go into the whole story of its creation, but the 6502 was basically derived from the 6800 as a low-cost version. Its pen layout is different to avoid a lawsuit, though Motorola still sued, but it was created by ex-Motorola people, and it was based on doing a low-cost version of the 6800. Richard Garriott is a master of the 6802, knows how to program with it now, and is making lots of money making games on the Apple II. So in the 6809 class, he programs as if he's programming 6502. They're similar enough that it works, but it's not taking advantage of all the power of the 6809 because that is actually a more powerful processor. It can do things the 6502 can't. 
The professor gets more and more aggravated with him for good reason and starts docking his grade for not doing the assignment the way he wants. Richard, being perhaps a bit arrogant at this point because he's a young man that's been something of a star in the computer game world, thinks this is ludicrous and refuses to bow to the instructor and keeps doing things the way he's always done them because, after all, it's making hit games for me. How many hit games do you have, sir? Not saying he actually said that. I'm just saying I think that's kind of the mentality. He ends up leaving school in the middle of all this. His parents are horrified. They both have advanced degrees. His siblings have, or in the case of some of his younger siblings, will in the future have advanced degrees. He's the only one in the family that is not taking education seriously. It's a family that's big on education. But he's adamant that I'm not learning anything useful here and i am already got a career. Finally, his parents grudgingly are like, okay, fine, but you're going to go back to school when this computer game thing is over because this is definitely a fad. Ha ha ha. He ends up leaving school, and that's when he starts doing this thing more or less full-time. To bring this back to Ultima 2, he knew he wanted to do another game in a similar vein to Ultima because Ultima was successful, and he wants to keep this going. He wasn't necessarily, in the beginning, though, thinking in terms of creating a unified world or a unified experience. If you look at the first three Ultima games, even though he does end up linking them through the villains, they are very much not related to each other, especially the second game in relation to the first and the third game. Because, well, we'll get there. It's completely different. He knows he wants to do a similar type of game. He sees a movie in the theaters. A little thing called Time Bandits. Time Bandits? I don't think I've seen that movie. I haven't either. It was done by Terry Gilliam of Monty Python fame. It has a very Python-esque vibe to it. A couple of Monty Python people are in the movie, but so are other people, like Sean Connery, for instance, is even in it. It's basically about a bunch of dwarves who are able to bounce around through history using a special map that shows the locations of magical time gates that appear and disappear at intervals, and the map allows you to see where they'll be and when and allows you to go through them and travel through time. That sounds like a precursor to the Moon Gates in Ultima. You've played Ultima 2 as well, haven't you? Been a while. Been a very long while. So yes, it is a precursor to the Moon Gates in the later Ultimas. That's absolutely correct. Ultima 2 has time gates that disappear and reappear at intervals. He lifts that directly from the movie. The movie also includes a time of legend that they had to go to to overcome the big bad which is exactly what you do in Ultima 2 at the end. You go to a time of legends and defeat the big bad, which he decides to link to the first game by making it the wife, (laughs) Minax of Mondain. He decides that time travel doesn't make sense in a fictional setting. Yes, yes, Chrono Trigger, blah, blah, blah. Chrono Trigger hasn't happened yet, kids. He figured that time travel is not meaningful without a frame of reference that the player will understand. So he decides to set it on Earth so that you can go back and forth between various periods of Earth history, not just recorded history, but also to like Pangea and post-apocalyptic wastelands where the land masses are different, etc. So it doesn't really take place in the Ultima sort of universe. It's more Earth as we know it. It's Earth, but not really as we know it. He borrows the geography of Earth. He places cities in places, and they have no relation to anything. It's not like you travel to the Roman Empire when you go back to, like, 30 BC or whatever it is. It really doesn't bear any resemblance to real Earth. He puts cities and towns where he wants to. They don't have really much bearing on historical cities and towns. There's the occasional call-out 
you get an airplane in a city that's called New San Antonio, which is in the spot where San Antonio is, though in 1990, I don't know why he thought that by 1990 there would be a new San Antonio on the ashes of the old. And you get an airplane there, and there are a bunch of Air Force bases there, so it kind of connects that you would get an airplane there, but it's not really coherent. I mean, the towns have whatever names he wants to give them. They're not the names of real towns. He names one after his sister, for instance, which is not a real place. He sets it on Earth, but not really. Just like the Society for Creative Anachronism, Earth. I suppose that's one way of looking at it. But there are a lot of improvements. It's all in assembly language now, so that's good. It runs a little better. The tile-based map system's not much different from the first game, but the dungeons are much smoother, the first-person dungeons. However, there's literally no reason to go to the dungeons. There is nothing in the dungeons you need at all. No reason to go in the dungeons. Well, that's just silly. Literally, there's no reason. I mean, it's not like you even need to go in there to level up by fighting monsters because there are overworld encounters in the game, too. The towns are all distinct now, though. That's the kind of the big new thing. Instead of this one generic town interface or castle interface that you enter every time you enter a town that's the same regardless, each town is uniquely sculpted now. It's much more akin to the Dragon Quest games, which, of course, once again, emulated all this stuff, where you have a castle or a town on the overworld map, you walk on that tile, and then you're taken to a totally new screen, which is a tile-based rendering of that town. That town is unique in its layout and where things are located and the people that are there, etc. Now we get the core gameplay loop that drives Ultima in the future. Because yes, in the first game, you did have to go to the tavern often enough to get a couple of the clues you needed to solve the game. That's a very small part of things. This is where we get the key gameplay loop of Ultima. Go to town, find all the townspeople... Talk to each town person by using a series of verb commands provided by the game. In later games, sometimes you have to also figure out new verbs you can ask them and not just the basic set. See what their response is. Pick out the clues. Use those clues to go to the next place you need to go to discover an item or kill a bad guy or talk to the next person that gives you the next clue to get to the next place. I'm sure this all sounds very familiar to you, Jeffrey. It does. It sounds very familiar to all those Dragon Quests I played. But also the Ultimas, yes. Of course. But it's really an Ultima 2 that this all starts. It gets far more sophisticated in the later Ultimas. You're seeing the beginnings of that gameplay loop here. You also find a spaceship again because he likes spaceships. He likes Star Wars. He's a nerd. He's a nerd and it's the right period of time. You have to go explore the solar system as well as the planet Earth. Though the solar system is rather weird because you can walk around on the grassy surface of Jupiter, which we all know is very grassy. Well, I don't know. It could be really grassy underneath all of those clouds, especially under that red dot. I mean, that's just a target that says, land here for grass. Yes, I'm sure that's how stellar physics works. We're sure his dad, as an astronaut, was just shaking his head at that one. (laughs) Probably, probably. It's good you bring up that his father's an astronaut again, because that's also where some of this space excitement comes from. And his father did go into space a couple of times, though never to the moon. You also get nothing from going to any of these planets. The entire solar system is there, but there's nothing to find there. The only place that has something important is a planet X, 
that you learn exists by talking to people and you go to Planet X and you find something. All the other planets have nothing to do on them, just like the dungeons. So the dungeons and the planets that you can see and easily access are all red herrings. I don't think they deliberately were. It's pretty clear that Richard got very ambitious with this game and didn't really finish it in any meaningful way. I think some of these things would have tied in if he had had time to finish it. He had a devil of a time with it. Of course, he started working on it when he was still going to school. Then he quit school. Very famously, he wanted to include a cloth map with the product that showed how the time gates work. A map that shows how the time gates work. Didn't we just talk about this in Time Bandits? I think that might have come up, yes. The only company that agreed to do the cloth map, which he was obsessed with, like he says that he went to see Time Bandits multiple times in the theater to try to figure out all the connections on the map. You only see it for a few seconds. And of course, after all of that, he realized it's just a prop. I mean, of course, it's just a prop. I mean, he knew it wasn't a real time map. I didn't mean it like that. But what I mean is that they didn't try to make the prop actually look like it functioned the way it was supposed to. It's just a map that has no significance. It's the MacGuffin. Exactly. He was obsessed with the map. So that's why he wanted to make not just the time gates within the game, but the cloth map that you hold central to the product because of time bandits. Sierra was the only company that would let him do it, so he actually moved out to their dormitory that they had on site to finish the game. He didn't really fit in there. The lifestyle there wasn't his kind of lifestyle. Just different people. It wasn't that it was a problematic lifestyle. He didn't really fit in there. I think the game was a struggle all the way through. He's finding his way through assembly language as he goes. Eventually, they just had to release something, I think. Ultima 2 stands out as the most unfinished of all of the early Ultimates. Whether it's more unfinished than 9 or 8 is left as an exercise for a different episode. Like the next one. Certainly of the games 1 through 7, I think that Ultima 2 definitely comes across as the most unfinished, the most full of more possibility than actual accomplishment. At least the game ran, didn't crash. When you did do the actual plot thing, you didn't have the problem of whether or not that flag would randomly be turned on or not. (laughs) Right, exactly. So it has a lot of frayed threads. But again, it was the possibility because the eight planets of the solar system didn't have anything. You, as someone who just got the game, didn't know that. What you saw is like, oh my God, now I have a spaceship. And oh my God, I can explore the solar system. People weren't thinking in terms of, is there an end goal there? Is there a plot furtherance there? Is there a character furtherance there? They're just enamored with the exploration. And there is something very charming about the idea of what Richard Garrett tried to do with these early Ultima games with having to talk to specific people to get specific clues. You kind of get that in more modern RPGs. And when I say more modern, I even mean in terms of modern in the sense of Dragon Quest just a few years later. Technically, Dragon Quest, someone will say, you know, there's a village to the east and, you know, they're known for this or whatnot. And so you travel east. You get a little bit of that. These later games, especially when they came to the United States and there was a fear that Americans wouldn't go for some of the harder aspects, American children that were on the NES, they did a lot to hold your hand. There were maps available. There were guides published in Nintendo Power available. Dragon Quest, they didn't publish a guide for the entire game in Nintendo Power, but they did something that kind of held your hands through the early levels. Then when they gave it away with the uh, Nintendo Power subscription, they actually did include a full walkthrough booklet that had almost everything in it. 
later games went out of their way to hold your hand through stuff so that even if you missed the subtle clue, you would still find your way where you needed to go in the end. The Ultima games did not do that. The early Ultima games. They really set you adrift in this world with very little help. There was the time gate map. That's about it. With very little help, you have to figure your way through the world. You start on this one continent in Ultima 2. I mean, it's like the planet Earth. To get to other continents, you have to have a ship. They don't really tell you where the ship is. You kind of just have to explore until you find a town that has a ship. And then, as always, the best way to get the ship is to steal the ship. Because Ultima. Before 4. Right. We'll get there. But in the early days, Ultima stealing and murdering was just called everyday gameplay. (laughs) Creative gameplay. So you get a ship, but it can be hard to find that. Finding Planet X, knowing that you have to go to Planet X, which is not obvious, to get the final stuff you need to beat the game, is not obvious. And if you miss the one person that gives you the vital clue, you're out of luck. I think the fact that it doesn't hold your hand, while off-putting to a certain type of game player, was exactly what the kind of game player that was interested in this kind of PC game back in that time period wanted. So it works. Anyone that plays Ultima 2 today, modern commentators that are going back and playing it, generally have pretty unflattering things to say about it, and every single one of those unflattering things is justified. It's quirky, it has frayed edges, it doesn't make sense, etc., etc. As you put so well just a little bit ago, it was that possibility, that idea of exploration and puzzle solving continuing to move through this world, and the idea that maybe on the next tile something interesting will happen. Maybe in the next dungeon, something interesting will happen. That's what kept people playing. The fact that, unlike today, where we can get bored if we don't get major progress in 30 minutes, we're talking about a time where people will play games for days and days and be thrilled to make one step. Absolutely. And that was partially by design, of course, because the games were smaller back then. Today, you can get a person to play a game for days, weeks, months on end by having more areas, more content, more challenges, more achievements, or most notably, robust and ever-changing multiplayer component. Back then, you had none of those things. You couldn't do the multiplayer component because ha-ha, but you couldn't do big, interesting game worlds either because of memory restrictions. Computers don't have hard drives. You're putting everything on compressed five and uh, quarter floppy disks and then loading them into anywhere from 16 to 64K of RAM. That's all you got. Part of the way that they kept you playing, I mean, there's two ways you can do it. If it's an action game, you make it so challenging that they die 50 billion times before they finally beat it. If it's a game like a role-playing game, you just make something that's big and takes a bit of effort to connect the dots and doesn't hold your hand, hope that that obscures from the fact that there's really not much game there when you actually know what's going on. This is why speedrunners going through early Ultima games can probably beat this thing in five minutes. (laughs) Right. So that's Ultima 2. Ultima 2 is published by Sierra. As we talked about in our origin episode, that leads to problems. Sierra almost goes bankrupt in this period. We have a whole Sierra episode talking about that. Long story short is that Richard doesn't get all of his money. California Pacific had gone belly up and Richard hadn't got all his money before. This is getting annoying. His brother Robert's like, well, why don't we found our own computer game company with blackjack and hookers? So they found Origin Systems. Ultima 3, then, 
the first game released by Origin Systems. I mean, maybe not the very first game, but the first Ultima game released by Origin Systems is kind of the culmination of this first phase of Ultima. This is the one where everything mostly makes sense. It still has some of the design flaws that Richard Garriott's early games all tend to have, which is that sometimes you get the clue from this random NPC on this one hard-to-see spot on the map, and if you miss him, woe be to you, because nothing else will tell you the next thing you need to do to advance. It still has that, but on the whole, it's a much more polished game. We're back in Cesaria, the setting of the first game. It's not called Britannia yet. At this point, it's Cesaria. We're back in Cesaria. We're back with Lord British and some of the other characters that we know from the first game. We have the towns, again, even a little more sophisticated because now walls block your sight of people, which can be a problem because, as I previously indicated, that sometimes makes it hard to find that one person you need to talk to in order to make things happen. Especially if they walk around a building and you're not going in the right direction. Exactly. But it's a little more sophisticated. The dungeons are back. The dungeons actually matter this time. This is, in a way, the first real coming out of the dungeons, because even though the dungeons in Ultima 2 were much improved over Ultima 1, you could skip them. This is the first time that there are much better dungeons, and oh, by the way, you better go in there. Another thing is that this is the first time that you have a party. The first two games are solo experiences. This time you get a party of four. You get them right off the bat, and later Ultima games you start solo, and then you have to find people to join you. In this one, you get them right off the bat. It has a more complex combat system where you go and have essentially a tactical combat encounter where it's still overhead view. It's not like Dragon Quest, which took the wizardry combat system and put it on top of the Ultima overworld system. But it's kind of more tactical. It's overhead view. You control your characters and you can take advantage of things like archers being able to do ranged attacks. It's a more interesting combat system. There's a character set now, so it's not that three-quarters bitmap with a little bit of text on the bottom that all your stats and whatnot are displayed very nicely on the side in a nice bigger space because it uses a character set to generate those now in the bitmap, no longer using the mixed mode. It's just overall a much more polished game. We talked about this in terms of wizardry before, how... Wizardry was a more polished game than Akalabath or Ultima 1 or Ultima 2, by far. But then Wizardry stayed stagnant. Ultima is getting better every time. You could argue that there's some parts of Ultima 2 that are steps back from Ultima 1, like the dungeons not mattering, but that was more because he ran out of time for the game rather than him not improving core concepts of the game. Ultima is getting better every single time time. This one is way better than the last one because he always starts over from scratch. Each Ultima is built on a new engine. He's got a bigger world with more to do, more to see, more to explore. Dungeons that you have to actually explore to get key items that you need to beat the game. You have to find what he called marks, which give you special abilities that are required to overcome the final challenge. One of them has a Time Lord in it as well, clearly. A Doctor Who fan as well as a Star Wars fan and a Time Bandits fan who also gives you a clue that you need to beat the game. So, I mean, you actually have to go into the dungeons this time. You have party adventuring, which is cool. 
you have the dialogue system becoming more robust where now instead of just necessarily having the canned commands to ask them questions, you can actually figure out other verbs that will also have effects. Sometimes a character will give you a verb that you don't know exists. One example of this is there's a temple that you have to pray inside to get a secret word. This secret word is required to enter the sanctum of the final big bad exodus to challenge him and beat the game. Pray is not one of the commands that you're told. You actually have to discover through interacting with the world and interacting through people in the world that praying is something you can do. It's a two-part puzzle. It's not just that you have to figure out you have to pray to get the secret word. You have to figure out that you can pray in the first place. We still got all that technology in there because our final boss is a computer named Exodus. Exactly. Exodus, and again, the name means nothing. I mean, Exodus obviously has a real meaning in the English language, but he just chose the word again because it sounded cool. Akalabeth, Ultima, Exodus, they're all just words that Richard Gary thinks is cool. They have no deeper significance. Exodus is billed as the son of the husband and wife duo that you defeated in the first two games. But when you actually get there, it turns out that Exodus is a computer. It's a very Star Trek kind of thing. You can tell he's also a Star Trek fan because there were a couple of episodes where Captain Kirk had to make a computer short circuit itself by using logic and paradoxes and stuff. It's something that became something of a trope in science fiction after Star Trek did it. And that's what you have to do with Exodus, too. You basically have to shut it down with logic. So it's still got a little bit of science fiction, even though it doesn't have the science fiction of the other two. But he's starting to think more in terms of a logical world. Yes, there's still a computer there, but he's not just throwing everything in the kitchen sink. There's not a spaceship. There's not space travel on top of everything else. He's focused more on this is the realm of Cesaria, which it is at this time. You know, we're going to keep things a little more grounded. The time gates become the moon gates. This is where we see the first instance of those, which become a staple in Ultima, which appear and disappear at intervals, but this time, instead of taking you through time, allow you to teleport around the world. It's just the culmination of everything that these first three games did. It finally gets the full Ultima feedback loop in place. Go to town, talk to people, get clues that lead you to other places and other people to get more clues to beat the game. As part of this as well, go to dungeons, conquer dungeons to get important items or clues that you also need to beat the game. That's the Ultima gameplay loop right there. Ultima 2 was most of the way there, but the dungeons didn't matter. This time, the dungeons also matter. Exodus is, in a way, the culmination of kind of the first Ultima trilogy. They're not a real trilogy in the sense that the fourth through sixth and seventh through ninth games are. They don't really have linked plot. Yes, he links them together by saying, it's the evil wizard. Now it's the evil wizard's wife. Now it's the evil wizard's son. But they're really not linked in any other way than that. And of course, the second game doesn't even take place on the same planet as the first and the third game. And there's not a story reason for that. There's no story thing explaining why you have to go to Earth in the second game. It's just, we're on Earth now. They're not a cohesive trilogy in the way that the later games are a cohesive trilogy. But in terms of Richard Garriott learns how to make a game, this is a trilogy. The first game is mostly in basic, very primitive. All the towns are the same. The second game, now we're doing assembly, but oh my God, we've bitten off more than we can chew. 
So the game is incomplete. There's elements of the game that don't connect. There's vast swaths of the game that are empty. It's a problem. Ultima 3 is we're in assembly and we figured out how to make a good game in assembly. So all the pieces matter. We have a party instead of an individual. It's like the culmination of creating the core Ultima gameplay loop. So in part two of what it looks like now is really going to be our trilogy of Ultima episodes, our trilogy on trilogies, we will see how Richard Garriott took all of this programming and gameplay knowledge and then transformed it into something that actually had something to say that wasn't just robbing, pillaging, killing, looting your way through the game world, but actually tried to make you think about the ramifications of your hero's impact on a world that would very quickly be renamed from Cesaria to Britannia. Always a fun thing when you look at this from the outside or if you go back and play it. You have Ultima 1, 2, 3. To be honest, I only played them a little bit. Mm-hmm. I couldn't get into them. Ultima 4, 5, and 6, yeah, I could get into them because you have more of a plot to them. You have more of an adventure thing. You have that morality system where you choose your quote-unquote class based off of what your morality is and what you're more aligned to. Mm -hmm. That's interesting. That's fascinating. I enjoyed the concept of Ultima 5 so much that for Halloween, I would dress up as a Shadow Lord, Astroth, the Shadow Lord of Hatred. Mm-hmm. It's a game that had a pull on a lot of people. I mean, it's it's the first one that really did. Ultima 3 was the first one to break 100,000 units in sales. Ultima 3 was a bona fide hit. Each Ultima game sold more than the one before it. Ultima 4 is really where the series goes from pretty interesting RPG to computer gaming phenomenon. That is where we will pick up the story in part two of our trilogy on Ultima Trilogies. Okay, kids, as your standard, wonderful, they create worlds bookie, those of you who have chosen that Alex has talked way too much, the house is, of course, only doing a one-to-one on that because we know how much he talks. Those of you who are waiting for that wonderful payoff of 20-to-1 for Alex staying with what he originally said, you lose your money, you do not get anything, go home, you lose, good Day, sir. <laughs> we'll see you next time on They Create Worlds. Check out our show notes at podcast.theycreateworlds.com where we have linked to some of the scenes that we discussed in this and other episodes. You can check out Alex's video game history blog at videogamehistorian.wordpress.com. Alex's book, They Create Worlds, The Story of the People and Companies That Shaped the Video Game Industry, Volume 1, can now be ordered through CRC Press and at major online retailers. Email us at feedback at theycreateworlds.com. Our Twitter is TCW Podcast. Please consider supporting us on Patreon at patreon.com slash theycreateworld. Intro music is Airplane Mode by Josh Woodward. Found at joshwoodward.com slash song slash airplane mode. Used under a Creative Commons attribution license. Outro music is Stone, the Ultima 9 version by Origin Systems, used with love. <laughs>